I want to begin this morning uh, by looking at an incident in the life of Abraham, a story of faith, but so much more than that. To unbelieving eyes, uh, this is something of a confusing nightmare. And it certainly grabs your attention. The entire event is designed, it is arranged, and planned by God himself. It is his idea from start to finish, and certainly it stands out as a high point in the life of Israel's founding father, Father Abraham. And if you are knowledgeable of the New Testament and the events of Christ's death and resurrection, the story takes on an incredible, almost amazing, prophetic significance. And I just want to start with the first two verses here to sort of set the scene. It says, Now it came about after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, Here I am. And he said, Take now your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. Right away, there's some interesting aspects about this, besides the shopping, shocking fact that God is asking a man to kill his own son. The language is interesting. He says, your son, your only son, Isaac. Now, curiously, Isaac, if you know the story, was not Abraham's only son. He had an older brother, Ishmael. He wasn't even the first son. Isaac was the child of promise, however, that God promised that through Isaac and through his children, and eventually that was Jacob and the 12 tribes, but through Isaac, the promise of blessing that God had promised Abraham would be fulfilled. Isaac was the child of promise so could he represent in this story, possibly, the sacrifice of another only begotten son? Well, I think you'll see that that's the case, especially since Abraham is told not merely to slay him, but to offer him up as a sacrifice, very specifically. And he's told to do it at a place called Moriah. The only other place Moriah is even mentioned in the Old Testament is 2 Chronicles 3.1, which tells us that Moriah is where Jerusalem is. So this only son, who isn't really an only son in this case, was to be offered up as a sacrifice at a place, perhaps the exact spot, since God says he's going to show him when he gets to Moriah exactly where he wants him to go, where 2,000 years later the other only son would be sacrificed. So God not only commanded the act, he chose the spot. And Abraham obeyed. Verse 3, it says, Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, took two of his young men with him, two servants, and Isaac his son. And he split wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place which God had told him. It was a journey. They arrived in verse 4, it says, on the third day. Does third day remind you of anything? It should. It was on the third day that Jesus Christ reclaimed his life and returned to the Father. Okay. On the third day, Abraham raised his eyes and saw the place from a distance. And Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey, and I and the lad will go yonder. And we will worship and return to you. 
That we in Hebrew, it's hard to describe to you, but it's very emphatic. We will worship and we will return to you. Very interesting. What was he expecting to happen? Abraham knew two things. This is why he's called the man of faith. He knew that Isaac was the promised child through whom Abraham would father a great nation. That was his promise. And he believed it. And second, he knew he was supposed to kill his son. So what do you do with those two things? Well, that's not right. That's a, that's a, it, you, this is unfair. Forget it. I mean, that's what, how many of us, I think, would react. You're just, you contradicted yourself. You know what a man of faith does? He says, I have two impossible things to believe. That my son is the child of promise and I'm supposed to kill him. To a doubter, it would mean that God was self-contradictory, but to Abraham, the believer, it meant that God would raise Isaac from the dead. That's what he believed would happen. That was his expectation. In verse 6, another startling picture emerges as Isaac carries on his back, Isaac carries on his back the wood on which he would be sacrificed. Does that sound familiar? Who else bore his own wood to the place of execution? This is 2,000 years before and in the exact same place. Now the narrative emphasizes a new concept starting in verse 7, the provision of God. Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and said, My father, and he said, Here I am, my son. They're walking along together. And he said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb? for the burnt offering. And Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. So the two of them walked on together. God will provide for himself the lamb. This is the story of the New Testament. God providing for himself the lamb. When John the Baptist, the great prophet, first saw Jesus coming, he said, Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. God will provide for himself a lamb. Well, now let's see what happens here. Verse 9, When they came to the place of which God had told him, and Abraham built the altar there, and arranged the wood, and bound his son Isaac, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood, Verse 10, Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here I am. And he said, Do not stretch out your hand against the lad and do nothing to him, for now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Then Abraham raised his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him, a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered him up for a burnt offering in the place of his son. And Abraham called the name of that place, that place where 2,000 years later the Son of God would die, the Lord will provide. And then Moses writes, who wrote this book, he says, as it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord it will be provided. For centuries, the place would be called, every time somebody walked by that place, they would say, you know what this place is? This is the place where the Lord provides. Isn't that incredible? 
Jehovah Jireh, the Lord will provide. And it became a saying among Abraham's children, down to the day of Moses, at least, who wrote it in this book, in the mount of the Lord, it will be provided. It's remarkable. A sacrifice provided in place of another. An only son returned to life by God's provision. These are themes and ideas which just reverberate all throughout the New Testament. Sonship and sacrifice and substitution. Now, turn with me to Romans chapter 1. As it just happens, our continuing study of the book of Romans brings us this morning to the book's opening thesis statement. Paul's letter to the church at Rome is a systematic presentation of what God has done for humanity in Jesus Christ, through Jesus Christ. And the first 15 verses of chapter 1 are essentially an introduction containing Paul's greeting and his personal desire to come and minister in person in Rome. Verses 16 and 17, our text for today, we might call the thesis statement of the whole book or even the textual statement because the theology of Romans is built around an Old Testament text which he quotes in verse 17, Habakkuk 2.4, which says, the righteous shall live by faith. When all is said and done about any person's life, the question that matters most to every individual is, how can I be right with God? And that's the question of the entire book of Romans. That's the question he's answering. How can I be right with God? Can I be? Yes. How? How can I be? And that's where he's going to explain. That's the question this letter answers. Now, I would like to suggest it is the question for every human life. It's the question you should be asking. It's the question I should be asking. Everything else is secondary. If I'm not right with God, who cares about all the other stuff, right? I mean, where, where's it going to go anyway? It'll all be lost. If he rejects me, then what have I gained? What experience have I had or deed will I do that will be anything other than a bitter memory in the end if he rejects me? And if you knew me, you'd say he has good reason to. So let's see how Paul begins to explain the way that you and I can be right with God. Verse 16. I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the righteous man shall live by faith. In these two brief verses, you will notice a lot of important Christian words. Gospel, power, salvation. Everyone believes, righteousness, faith, lives. Those are pretty important words, and they're all right here. This is, this is where the whole book's going to go, to explain these words. But verse 16 starts with a little word, for. And if you ever see a for... It's there, the four is there for a reason. So you look back and say, why did he say four? Four, he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. That little word points right before. In verse 15, he said he's eager to preach the gospel in Rome. He can't wait to get there. He says, four, I am not ashamed of the gospel. Why would anyone be ashamed 
of the gospel. Isn't Christianity one of the world's great religions? Who would be ashamed of that? It wasn't in those days. It was a very odd little group from a very odd little place in a very far off corner of a very mighty empire. It was strange. The Jews were strange enough. Now they've spawned another group out of themselves, the Christian group, and they were even stranger. In fact, to preach Christ, the real Christ, was to invite upon yourself scorn and ridicule. And if you try to do it today, you'll find out that it hasn't changed all that much. We know what that's like. We live in a time much like Paul's. Arrogance and foolishness combined in a powerful culture and sensuality prevailing everywhere. And the gospel is regarded as silly. Think of it. The Romans were the masters of the world. Palestine was a conquered land. The Jews, a weak people with weird ideas. There's only one God. <laughs> How strange can you get? Roman armies conquered the known world. Roman roads connected everywhere. Roman commerce stretched to the farthest reaches of the human experience. Roman architecture, Greco-Roman culture dominated nation after nation after nation. People wanted to be like them. And they believed in their obvious superiority. So here come the Christians, worshiping as God and proclaiming as Lord of Lords and King of Kings, a lowly Jew, the son of a carpenter, who was crucified as a common criminal in a distant province of a mighty empire. It's preposterous. If you just think of it that way, it's preposterous that anyone should follow and worship a dead Jewish criminal, let alone proclaim him the Lord of all things and the Savior of the world. How silly can it be? In the fourth century, soon after Christianity had become legalized and was just starting to sort of be the dominant religion of the that part of the world, the Roman Empire still stood. And one of the church fathers that lived at that time, John Chrysostom, who was a bishop in, one, in the capital of the eastern part of the Roman Empire, that Rome eventually split into two capitals. Rome was on one, and um, Constantinople, what today is, well, who, they always change the name of that place, Istanbul, and then it became uh, whatever, whatever it is today. Um, that mighty city in the, in the eastern part of the empire. He was the bishop there, and, and he wrote this. Now, the Roman Empire was still there, so all the basic functions were still there. Christianity had just become dominant. He says, Paul was going to preach Jesus, who was thought to be a, a, the carpenter's son, who was brought up in Judea, and that in the house of a lowly woman, who had no bodyguards, who was not encircled in wealth, but even died as a culprit with robbers and endured many other inglorious things. So un-Roman. In fact, he wasn't even a Roman. He wasn't even a citizen. So yeah, if you think about it, it's a message that is easily mocked. More easily then than today. But it still is today. Every effort is made to deride and ridicule faith in Jesus. In academia, in Hollywood, even in religion. I had a really interesting experience this morning at Vasquez Rocks, but an even more interesting experience last week during we were practicing for the big passion play we do over there every year. And uh, it was, you know, it was a Saturday afternoon. It's, you know, when you do it on Sunday morning, the people that are there, like, wanted to come. But when you do it, when you're practicing, 
people were planning to go to Vasquez Rocks and they end up seeing a guy getting crucified and a tomb opening and people rising from the dead and angels flying around. I mean, it, that's not what they went there for. They went to climb on rocks, you know. So, uh, and, and without fail, when they start doing this whip thing, Joel Sheridan, who's a, a horseman, he starts whipping Jesus and the whip's cracking. And as soon as the whip cracks, if you ever just stand on the back of the rocks, you can just watch people start going towards the set and watch the show because the whip is so loud for one thing, but I mean, it just draws their attention and everybody wants to see that. Because whatever else is going on, these people wearing funny costumes, when somebody's getting whipped, we want to go see that. So why, I don't know, but they, they all move in that direction. Well, three people that came to see the whip and what was going on were uh, last Saturday were three young men that were dressed in the kind of clothes that make you uh, really cool in the Hollywood scene. They looked like Hollywood people, you know, all black and sunglasses and certain kind of hairstyle that people in Hollywood wear. It's just film types, you know. And they were having a really great time laughing at Jesus and, and mocking uh, his suffering and saying things that I wouldn't even repeat because they're unrepeatable blasphemies. Filthy comments about the Lord Jesus Christ. Not just the play, not, not that it was a bad play. Christ himself, they were mocking the whole thing. And I was reminded how little has changed in 2,000 years. How, how easy it is to ridicule him, even as he died, to pay for the sins of those very people that were mocking him. And I thought of his words. The first words he said as they drove the nails in, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they do. And a little later, I overheard these same three guys engaged in a new conversation, and now they were very serious and very thoughtful, going over in detail which original Star Trek episodes had been filmed at Vasquez Rocks and uh, what the title of the episodes were and who was in each episode and showing their knowledge and discussing this with one another. Really important stuff, you know. Because Star Trek trivia is really cool, and Jesus Christ is total nonsense to them. And I think that's why Paul was not ashamed, strangely enough. He knew that Jesus was true. Of course, he knew it, because Jesus had appeared to him personally. But he wasn't intimidated by the world. In other words, he could see right through all the world's stuff. The vanity and the emptiness, as Brooke was talking about earlier this morning, the shallowness of worldly philosophy and human ideas and the might of Rome and their great culture, the barbaric culture of Rome, so proud and so evil. He could see right through all of that. The fact is man's power his glory, his achievements, his exploits, his culture are, the corrupt, are so corrupted with sin that they point only to the poverty of his spirit. It is remarkable, is it not, that Christianity got anywhere when you consider its origins. Just how did the gospel conquer this powerful pagan empire and outlive it even to this day? Why is Jesus, the carpenter's son, the martyred Rabbi, the criminal, worshipped still. Why are you here this morning? And Augustus Caesar is just kind of a guy you might pick up once a year on the History Channel if you were really interested in history, and who is that interested anyway? Because Romans 1.16, that's why. The gospel is the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes. That's why. The power of God is in the gospel, and it is in the gospel that he accomplishes his divine purposes. 
Paul asks in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20, he says, where, where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age, the debater? Where is he? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For indeed, Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. To Jews a stumbling block and to Gentiles foolishness. But to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Then he says, For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong, and the base things of the world, and the despised God has chosen, the things that are not, that he might nullify the things that are, that no man should boast before God. God knew exactly what he was doing. Jesus didn't need the trappings of human glory to shine God's light into the souls of men. How much brighter does his glory shine that he was born not even in a house, in a stable, to very poor parents? He just exposes the emptiness of all that stuff that the world is so into. He came to reveal God to men and then to bear our sin in his body as the lamb that God provided. Behold the lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. The power of God for salvation for everyone who believes. I love that word everyone because that's pretty inclusive. Jesus was born lowly to include the lowly. So no one could ever say it's not for you. Born poor to include the poor. Born an outsider to reclaim those who are on the outside. Remember what he said when they were chastising him for hanging out with lowlifes? He said, a doctor doesn't go to well people. He goes to sick people. I don't know if he said it like that, but that's, that's the truth. He doesn't go to the well, he goes to the sick. And Jesus is for everyone. The gospel is for everyone. What is the gospel? Well, let me quote again from 1 Corinthians, because Paul just flat out says what it is. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3. I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. That's it. That's the gospel. Christ died for our sins and rose again on the third day. He died for us in our place a substitution, a sacrifice, and he rose on the third day, echoes of Abraham and Isaac. Is it not? As God planted these ideas in his people thousands of years before he ever showed up on the scene. Well, the expression in 1 Corinthians 15, 3, that he died for our sins, explains the word salvation. The gospel is about salvation from sin. That's what it's about. Anybody here never sin? Don't raise your hand. You'll be embarrassed. We all are in the same boat, all of us. We all have the same need. That's why he says everyone. 
You know, the ancient people used that word saved just like we do. You could be saved from drowning. You could be saved from an illness. You could be saved from having to give a speech in public. But when we talk about salvation, when we use the word saved as a Christian, as it relates to the death and resurrection of Christ, we're talking about saved from sin. That's why First Romans one sixteen there, Paul says the gospel is the power of God to everyone who believes. Everyone has this need. We're not all drowning. We're not all sick. We don't all have to give speeches in public. Some of us even like to. But we all have willfully, we all have defiantly broken the laws of God. We have followed after our first parents in declaring our independence from our maker. And in doing so, we break his law in dozens, no, hundreds, maybe thousands of different ways. And we have all added to the corruption and the pollution of God's universe, which our first parents brought into his perfect world. And you know what? We're not really very sorry about it at all. There's been a lot in the news lately about apologies and what sorry means and things like that. We're about as sorry for our sin as the United States is for crashing into that plane or being crashed into or whatever the thing is. Well, we're really sorry it happened. But we're taking no responsibility for it. And I'm not saying we should as a country, but I'm saying we should for ourselves before God. But we don't. We need to be saved from that, even that attitude. Because God is an infinitely pure and infinitely holy being. He is all perfection. And not in some snooty way is he perfect, but in the very essence of his being to live and exist in perfect goodness. How can he tolerate corruption and wickedness and sin and not himself be a part of corruption and wickedness and sin? He can't. He would cease to be God. So wickedness cannot be tolerated or he ceases to be good himself. So sin invites down wrath, the wrath of God, divine retribution. Look at verse 18 of Romans 1. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. All ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. I need rescue. Not from drowning or public speaking or being sick. I need rescue from the wrath of God. And so do you. That is not religious talk. And you all know it. You all know it. You know it's true. You know it in your heart that it's true. You know what you've done, and so do I. I know what I deserve. Nobody has to tell me about the wrath of God. That's never been one of my big problems with Christianity, is believing that I deserve the wrath of God. I know me. That's why this is such good news. The gospel means good news. That's what the word is. Good news. The good news is that the power of God, the power of the one who made the universe, the power of the one we've offended, is not an aimless power, but has been directed to our salvation. Now, look at the next phrase in verse 16. He says, for salvation to everyone who believes. If you are into marking your Bible, I would underline the words, everyone who believes. This is important stuff. This tells us exactly how this great salvation provided by God's power comes to us. Who receives this salvation? Everyone who believes. That is the sole condition. This is the great 
Reformation principle of sola fide, which is just fancy Latin, actually it's pretty short Latin, for faith alone, sola fide. That is the glory of historic Protestantism. Not everyone who is baptized, not everyone who is circumcised, not everyone who attends church twice a week, not everyone who fasts, not everyone who visits Mecca, not everyone who gives money or whatever your thing is, it's everyone who believes. It is the power of God to everyone who believes, period. I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So the only question is, what does it mean to believe? Let me show you. If you skip ahead, we'll be there in a year and a half. Romans chapter 10. <laughs> That's a guess. The entire book of Romans is explaining this theme of salvation by faith alone. You're going to be hearing a lot about that over the months ahead. But here in Romans chapter 10, verse 8, I'm not going to get into the whole context because it's pretty clear on its own, but he says, what does it say? Talking about the scripture, he says, verse 8, what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we are preaching. That if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. For with the heart man believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call upon him. For, verse 13, whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. There it is. Now, if you step back to verse 9 there in Romans chapter 10, you, you need to acknowledge two things. No, acknowledge is too weak of a word. You need, to, you need to embrace two things with your heart from the inside that Jesus is Lord. That means what he says goes. And you must agree with this. You know the word confess? That's an interesting Greek word. Homologia. Homo means the same and logia means word. The same word. To confess is to say the same thing. You're agreeing. That's what it means to agree to confess. I confess, I agree that Jesus is the Lord. That's what it means. Agreeing with his lordship. And here's a real important distinction. If you get anything out of this morning, this is it. It's moving from this. Jesus is the Lord to this. Jesus is my Lord. That's what he's talking about. Believing, confessing in your own heart, your own soul. He becomes your Lord. Second, believing in his work. He died for you and rose again to validate and vindicate that his sacrifice was acceptable to God. Trust him from today forward. And not only will God's wrath be removed from you as Jesus bore it himself, but you will be a child of the living God. That's what he says. I don't say that. He says that. That is the power of God in the gospel to take rebel rebellious, wicked people and turn them into children of God. That's power. And that is good news. Very good news. Well, let's go back to Romans 1 real quick and just wrap it up with verse 17 there. Paul wanted his readers to understand that this salvation includes righteousness. That's another big word, righteousness. Being right with God. Doing right. That's what we are lacking without Christ. Are you righteous in yourself? Are you a righteous dude? Well, not in the biblical sense, I'll bet you. 
unless you know him. You see, he says, in it, in the gospel, God reveals his righteousness. Faith in Christ grants to us what we don't have, righteousness. There's a wonderful verse, one of my favorite verses in all the New Testament, 2 Corinthians 5.21, that explains what happened as Jesus died on the cross. An exchange actually takes place, a trade, a substitution, just like the ram for Isaac. He bore our sin and took upon himself God's wrath, and his perfect obedience, his righteousness, is actually applied to us. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, He made him, and he and him are God and Jesus. God made Jesus. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That's too weird. It's wonderful. It's amazing. His righteousness becomes our righteousness. His perfect obedience is granted to us. And the Bible even uses words like put into your bank account. It's like you have a deficit of righteousness and Christ just fills up your bank account with righteousness. So if God wants to see righteousness there and he checks the books, you're loaded to the gills with righteousness because Christ's righteousness is applied to you. And your sin, he took away on himself. It's either crazy or it's the most wonderful truth there is conceivable. And I believe it's the most wonderful truth it is conceivable. That's what Paul's talking about in Romans 1.17. We, the wicked, have his righteousness applied to us, and that makes us right with God. And again, how is it received? By faith. Just faith. Faith is something everyone can do if you just humble yourself. Every man, woman, and child can believe. There might be all kinds of religious stuff you can't quite do, but that you can do. And you know, the curious thing about faith is when you put your faith in him, he gives you the capacity and even the desire to do all that other stuff you're supposed to do. He's amazing that way. In it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, verse 17 says. Faith to faith is kind of a curious expression. It, it's probably just a Hebraic way of saying entirely. There's a lot of this to this using the same kind of word in, in Hebrew. And um, Paul, of course, is a Hebraic thinker. So it's just a way of saying all the way. In it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith all the way through. Faith is the thing. For the faith that trusts Christ today will be a more developed and more mature faith as the years go by. It just fills up everything. So faith is the key that unlocks that prison cell of corruption and condemnation that we find ourselves in. And by faith, we step into a new life of righteousness and internal peace and even something they call joy, which is very real. And that's the last important word there. Live new life. Paul wasn't teaching anything new. He reaches back to the Old Testament and he quotes Habakkuk 2.4, the righteous man shall live, live by faith. Our hearts long for life, a meaningful life, an eternal life. We're designed that way. That's why we have those cravings. And we can only find it by being right with God by the provision that he has made. In the mount of the Lord, it has been provided. So listen, without that ram in the thicket, Abraham's son Isaac would have been a goner, dead. 
that was a picture that was carved in a real human life, drawn in history for us. Because we'd be goners too without the Lamb of God, which he provided. Jesus, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. And in him we find, just as he promised we would, eternal life. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the gift of salvation through Christ and for the great clarity with which Paul expresses it. Oh, God, give us faith where we lack it. Don't let us go out of here the same people we came in here, but let us apply our hearts to you to reach out and take your extended hand of love and be new people. It's right there. And all we need to do is believe. Give us the faith to believe. In his name we pray, amen.